0: Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. If you don't have a Bible already, uh, I would encourage you to grab a Bible and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke this morning, chapter 9, verse 51. Luke chapter 9, verse 51. So, many of you know we are Casting Vision as a church, but today is also Palm Sunday, the beginning of Holy Week, and so we will be taking a two-week break from Casting Vision to focus with much of the rest of the global church um, on the the week that includes Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection. And so today marks his entry into Jerusalem. It's when the crowd gathers to usher him in, shouting and crying, Hallelujah. But in just five days, this crowd will be crying, Crucify him. And Jesus, of course, knows this as he enters Jerusalem today. He enters Jerusalem knowing how it will go down. And that's what we're going to focus on this morning. The resolute commitment of Jesus. And to do this, we're going to be looking at a rather obscure passage in the Gospel of Luke. uh, Chapter 9, verse 51. Because it's here that Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem. And this passage is in many ways connected to Palm Sunday. It's basically... The prelude to Palm Sunday. Let me just read the text with you. You can follow along. We'll pray and we'll see how God, uh, what God has to say for us this morning. This is again, Luke nine, verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them and they went on to another village. Lord, with the words of my mouth and with the meditation of all of our hearts of your word be pleasing and acceptable to you this morning. Our rock and our redeemer. And Holy Spirit, we do need your empowering presence now. And it's in Jesus name we ask this. Amen. Well, as you know, I recently became a dog person. Literally, I am a dog's person. I am a caretaker of a dog. And this is brand new to me. I didn't grow up with a dog. I never thought I would have a dog. But 2020 played tricks on all of us, didn't it? Uh, It's been an education for me. Totally honest. It's been a total education. And one of the many things I've learned about dog ownership here is uh, that if you are buying a dog from a breeder, some breeders will interview you. They want to know about you. They want to know about your family. They want to know about your home. They want to know if you have children. They want to know what their age is. They want to know, even if they're boys or girls, they want to know your schedule. They'll call references if they have to. Why? Because they care about their dogs. And they want to make sure these dogs will be treated well. And they are essentially testing your commitment. These breeders know from experience that humans are allergic to commitment especially when things get hard and complicated my sister actually works in the dog food industry and she tells me that 2020 has been like the best year ever no surprise there for sales but they are also nervous that 2021 is going to be the worst year ever in terms of animal welfare we can commit to a puppy when circumstances are easy but will we commit when life gets busy again? That's the question on everybody's mind in that world. Truth is, we struggle with commitment, especially when it's hard, especially when it's complicated. Those who study cultural trends would say that our low view of commitment right now in this moment flows from our modern view of freedom. We define freedom as freedom from commitment, don't we? So when things are hard or uncomfortable, we break our commitments. But what if freedom is not freedom from all commitments, but freedom within the right commitments? Uh, If you're in our Faith and Work book club, you know that Keller and Alsdorf compare freedom to a fish in the water. A fish is designed to breathe in the water. And so a fish is therefore most free when it is breathing and swimming in the water. When we free it, when when you know when we're going fishing and we free the fish from the water, what happens? The fish dies. The fish is absolutely unfree, even as it's free from its water. And they write this: quote: Freedom is not so much the absence of restriction as finding the right ones. Those that fit with the realities of our own nature. In those of the world. And so we could say the same thing about commitment. Couldn't we? Freedom is not so much the absence of commitment as finding the right ones. So we're glad, really glad that an airline pilot is committed to the basic principles of aeronautics, right? Uh, if she decided to become free from her commitments to the principles of aeronautics, we would die and we would uh, our families would press charges. No, we want her to be free In the air, within her commitment to aeronautical principles. We can think of a person in our life, past or present, who's committed to us. It could be a coach, a teacher, a spouse, a mom, a dad, maybe both. And we are better for it because we are receiving their commitment. But aren't they also better for it, too? Isn't it beautiful to see a person within the right kinds of commitments? But if we're honest, receiving this kind of commitment is rare. And if we're completely honest with ourselves, giving this kind of commitment is too rare. We struggle to give it. Even our deepest, most cherished relationships. Even God. Well, what if God knows this about you? And what if God is more committed to you than you are to him? This is exactly what Palm Sunday is about. The resolute commitment of God. In our text, as I read it, Jesus, I'm sorry, Luke tells us that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. Not once, but twice. It says in verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And then in verse 53, the people did not receive him. Why? Because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Jerusalem. This phrase is a common expression in the Old Testament that means resolute commitment. When someone sets their face to something, they are not changing their mind. They're they're not keeping their options open. They're they're set. They're resolute. Uh, For example, the prophet Isaiah talks about the resolute commitment of the future Messiah in chapter 50, verse 6 and 7. You can turn there if you want. In Isaiah 50, verses 6 through 7, we hear him say, the future Messiah, I give my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Think of Good Friday. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. Flint is a very hard stone. If something gets in the way of Flint, guess who wins? Flint wins. It's not flexible. It's not adaptive. It's not going to bend. It's not going to keep its options open. No, it's Flint. It's Flint. It's set. And so when Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem, he is fulfilling this prophecy. And he is basically with full knowledge, walking into his arrest. He's walking into his trial. He's walking into his execution, but he is resolute in doing so. He's not moving. He's not turning back. He is committed. He has set his face to the cross. Think about it. We confess that Jesus is fully God and fully human. And so he is the most free human to ever Live without sin. Completely free. But when you look at his life. It is a life of flint rock commitment. Even when it crushes his life. Jesus is committed to his people. He is committed to self-giving love. His face is set towards Jerusalem. Towards the cross. Towards our salvation. Luke loves this point and he wants us to love it too. He knows we're low on commitment. He knows that this is a human condition uh, issue and he wants us to see the commitment of Jesus. He wants our hearts to burn with the commitment of Jesus. He wants us to love the commitment of Jesus. He thinks it will change our lives. We learned last week that Luke organizes his gospel around meals if you remember, but these meals it has to be said, take place on a journey, a journey to Jerusalem. And the journey is referred to shortly before our passage in the transfiguration In the transfiguration. Uh, Jesus spoke. Well, Moses and Elijah spoke of his departure of his departure. So this is in verse 31 of chapter nine which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So we we hear that there's something that's going down, something like a departure. The actual Greek word there is exodus. There's something like an exodus that's going to happen in Jerusalem. And then in our passage, we see that Jesus sets his face towards his exodus. He sets his face towards not only his exodus, but the greater exodus, some kind of salvation moment, some kind of salvation event where judgment will happen, but also salvation. What could that be? What could that be? Could it be the cross? It's the it's the it's the greater Exodus. Jesus is setting his face towards that in our passage. And then in chapter 13 of Luke 22, we read Jesus went on his way through the towns and villages teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. So Luke is telling us that everything in this gospel is sort of moving and funneling towards Jerusalem. And then 11 verses later in chapter 13, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from where? Jerusalem. And then Luke 17, 11, we read that Jesus was... Quote, on the way to Jerusalem. And then Luke 18, further on, verse 31, he says to the 12 disciples, he says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. Everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. This journey culminates on Palm Sunday. Today, Luke 19, 41. It's worth turning. Luke 19, 41. It says, and when Jesus drew near and saw the city, Jerusalem, he wept over it. He wept over it. We'll talk about these tears in a moment. But for now, just notice that Palm Sunday is the culmination of years Of Jesus setting his face towards this city. Toward the cross. Jesus, in other words, will not be shocked. He will not be surprised when the crowds that greet him today turn on him on Friday. Today is called Palm Sunday. It could also be called Resolute Sunday. It could be called Commitment Sunday. Because it shows the resolute commitment of Jesus To go to the cross. Jesus could have turned around. He could have delayed. He could have put it off. But it is his love. That set his face. So Luke 9.51. This passage that we read. It may not be a classic Palm Sunday text. I realize that. But I want to spend some time on it. Just a brief moment on it this morning. Because this passage. Is where the journey to Jerusalem begins. This is the trailhead. To Jerusalem, And in this passage, we see two things about his commitment, his resolute commitment to the cross. Two things that I think will be important for you to hear. The first is that he's committed to the cross. He's committed. His face is set to Jerusalem when outsiders don't get it. And he's also committed when insiders don't get it. Let me explain what I mean. Whether you are... Um, consider yourself a religious outsider or whether you consider yourself a religious insider, whether you suffer from post-traumatic church syndrome or consider yourself God's favorite student in class. No matter who you are, inside, outside, Jesus is resolute. He's resolute and committed to the cross. So let's talk about the outsiders first. Uh, uh, This passage shows us that Jesus is committed to the cross even when The outsiders don't get it. Uh, There's no better ancient example of this uh, religious outsider than the country of Samaria. If you grew up in any kind of church setting and had Sunday school, you you could probably tune out right now and be okay because you know this already. Jesus was in Galilee up till now. He starts to head south towards Samaria, uh, towards Jerusalem, and he decides to go through Samaria. This alone is shocking, probably to original readers, because no faithful Jewish man or woman, um, for, for them, Samaria was a no-fly zone, essentially. There's a long, complicated history why this is the case, but in short, Samaria was an enemy nation, and it was an irreligious nation. In the eyes of Israel, uh, Samaria was an enemy. Remember Nehemiah? We, we preached through Nehemiah a while ago. He wanted to rebuild the temple and the temple walls. And Ezra and Nehemiah talk about this in and, and the, prophet, the prophetic books that we have by their name. And, and what we notice is that there's opposition to the building of God's house. Where does that opposition come from? It comes from Samaritans. Those were Samaritans. And so they were enemies. Samaria was also irreligious. They were Apostate—they broke away from God's people long ago in their worship and in their way of life. They had a false temple. They uh, Faithful Jewish men and women uh, would say they have an unbiblical faith. They went beyond the Bible in their life and in their worship, and so they had this kind of religious Ohio State Michigan thing going on for a long, long, long time. Only far, far, far worse. Samaritan uh, in, in in Israel was a slur during Jesus' time. His opponents accused him of being nothing less than a demon-possessed man and a Samaritan. That's what they called him, a Samaritan. And these sentiments would often lead to bloodshed. I read an account from the ancient historian Josephus this week that talks about how this this animosity and hatred often often, um, became deadly. But Jesus engages the Samaritans in this text. He extends his welcome to them, He sends his messengers down. And the reason we know that he does this, that he extends his welcome to them is because Luke tells us. And this is no small thing. Luke and Luke alone reports the welcome of Jesus to Samaritans. Luke had a special burden to tell the early church that Jesus extends his welcome to the religious outsider. Why? Why do you think? Well, it's because Luke himself was a religious outsider. He was a non-Jewish man. He was a Gentile. And he is the only non-Jewish author in the New Testament. New Testament scholar Esau Macaulay points out that this is no small thing. And we should think about this for a second. In fact, did you know that the controversy of all controversies in the early church had to do with whether or not Gentiles could be involved in the kingdom of God. Do outsiders like Gentiles have a place in the kingdom? And if they do, are they second-class citizens or first-class citizens? Are they just as welcome or kind of welcome? Well, Macaulay says this in his book, Reading While Black, quote, Luke's place in the canon is a testimony to God's value of all ethnic groups. Luke's gospel argues that God always intends to create an international, multi-ethnic community for his own glory. In other words, just the very presence of Luke's gospel and also Acts, which Luke wrote together, it's like a two-volume book, the gospel of Luke and the the book of Acts. Uh, This is a quarter of our New Testament This shouts, this alone shouts that Jesus came for the outsider. And Luke wants us to see it, which is why he pays attention to the Samaritans receiving the welcome of Jesus. Even though in this case they reject him. Luke tells us that this is not the end of the story for the Samaritans and the people who live there. In chapter 17 of Luke, Samaritan lepers experience and accept the welcome of Jesus. And then in Acts, oh my gosh, in Acts, also written by Luke, we see the Samaritans accept and, 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 and celebrate the welcome of Jesus in droves. So Acts 8 says, listen, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was so much joy in the city, Luke tells us. There was so much joy. Where? In Samaria, this exact place who rejected Jesus. Acts 9.31 says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied. See, when Jesus set his face to Jerusalem, this is what I want you to see, and walks through Samaria, he is setting his face to the cross for their sake. So let me just ask you, do you feel like a religious outsider? Do you resonate with the Samaritans this morning? Have you rejected Jesus? Are you currently uh, perhaps walking away from him? Well, look at the patience and the kindness of Jesus in this text. He rebukes the disciples who want to call judgment down. The patience of Jesus is extended to you. I want you to see that, but I also want you to see the commitment of Jesus to go to the cross for their sin and for their rejection. I just love wondering and pondering how many uh, Samaritans rejected Jesus here in Luke 9 but accepted Jesus here in Acts 8. I just wonder. I just wonder. And I look at the patience of Jesus. I look at his resolute commitment to still go to the cross for them. And then maybe you're the religious insider in this story. You feel like you're on Jesus' side. You care about Jesus being honored. Uh, That's a good thing. Well, have you written off the Samaritans of our day? Are you in your own way calling down fire on them? Well, Jesus challenges you along with James and John in this passage. We know and we confess that Jesus will come again to judge the living and dead. Peter said we, we should regard uh, God's patience, this, this, this window of time before the second coming, as, as a patient mercy, as a gift. And this window is large, it's 2,000 years and growing. It's large. And we believe that Jesus will set things right. We do not believe that Jesus will turn an eye on judgment. Our sins are either judged on the cross in our acceptance of Jesus or, or we ourselves are judged for our sins. We we believe this. But in the meantime, this is a window of gospel proclamation according to Jesus here. This is Palm Sunday when Jesus enters his city on a humble donkey. Later in Revelation, we see uh, Jesus coming on a battle horse. And so rejecting Jesus has eternal consequences. But right now we live between the donkey and the horse. And so we share the good news of Jesus before it's too late to our friends and neighbors and family and colleagues. This means we share the welcome of Jesus. We become evangelists. This means this passage implies that we aren't easily offended when, when Jesus is rejected. We're not surprised or shocked or angered when people reject the welcome of Jesus, as we talk about him uh, and live their life in accordance with that rejection. This isn't a surprising or shocking thing. This pastor should t- teach us that, but we should also understand that we are not right now awaiting the return of Jesus in a season of prophetic destruction, uh, calling for prophetic destruction to fall on sinners. Jesus will come and judge. He will sort that out. Uh, no, we are in a season of gospel proclamation. Jesus says, He says, let's go to the next town. Earlier he says, just shake the dust off your feet, but keep going. Keep sharing the good news. Our posture should be, in the words of Daryl Bach, well, Daryl Bach makes this point: Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Even as we share the hope that is within us and it's not received, Our prayer and our posture should be, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus is committed to the cross even when outsiders don't get it. But he's also committed to the cross when insiders don't get it. That's the crazy thing about the Gospels, actually, is that the insiders, the religious insiders, are more lost often than the outsiders are. The outsiders receive Jesus more readily. And the insiders seem to be more blind. We get hints of this in our passage when James and John totally ignore Jesus's teaching about turning the other cheek, about loving the enemy, about shaking the dust off the feet when faced with rejection. They totally ignore those, those teachings, and. Just before this passage, the disciples are bickering about who's greatest in the kingdom. And they seem to be in denial about the cross and that Jesus, uh, even though he said it over and over again to them, that I'm going to the cross to be handed over. Um, I'm going to die. That's why I came. They seem to be completely lost on that point as well. And then fast forward to Palm Sunday in Luke chapter 19, verse 41. Jesus finally sees Jerusalem. And what does he do? He weeps. He weeps not for himself. No, he weeps for them. He weeps for all who are best equipped to embrace him. Those who are nearest to it. Who have the scriptures that foretell the Messiah. I love Fleming Routledge's observation here. She says, quote, For a thousand years, God had been preparing her, that's Jerusalem, Through the prophets to meet her Messiah, her Savior, her Redeemer. Now, as the Messiah at last appears, she is going to arrest him on a trumped-up charge, try him in the middle of the night, flog him nearly to death, and execute him. Yet Jesus does not weep for himself. He weeps for the city. He weeps for those who will soon shout, crucify him in other words he weeps for us this is when we see the commitment of jesus in full glory i think of peter the apostle peter is just like the history of israel in person form but jesus died for him even when peter in jesus's last hours rejected jesus And then Jesus, uh, uh, in his resurrection, restores Peter on the shores of Galilee. You hear me often say this, but don't let it become a cliche. Jesus is more committed to you than you are committed to him. He's not waiting for your commitment to firm up for for him to show you his commitment. His commitment is already firm. It's already set like flint. I told you earlier about breeders who interview buyers to test their commitment level. Apparently, uh, a sign of a trustworthy breeder is is what's called the no matter what test. And so you're supposed to ask the breeder if they will take the puppy back or the dog back no matter what for any reason. And good breeders will say, yes, yes, no matter what, I will take the dog back. Their commitment is and always will be stronger than yours. And this is Jesus. Our commitment to him waxes, it wanes. Our commitment to him is so circumstantial. It's so set on, on how we're feeling or our experiences. And, and Jesus knows us and he understands us. This, he has compassion there. Do you see it? He, his commitment, though, is, is set. It's set. It is completely set like flint rock. His journey to the cross outpaces our rejections our rebellions, our resistances. It outpaces it all. Outsiders reject him. His face is set. His own inside people reject him. His face is set. Jerusalem becomes a bustling city or a bustling uh, place of growth for the early church. And so does Samaria. (sighs) It's amazing. That's because of the commitment of Jesus. That's because his commitment. And so where are you this morning? Where do you see yourself in this narrative? Whether you're a religious outsider or a religious insider, Palm Sunday says that you are both in need of his cross. And that Jesus is more committed to you than you will ever be to him. James and John in our passage want to call fire down from heaven to destroy those who reject Jesus. Jesus knows in this moment that he is set for Jerusalem in order to call fire down upon himself. For all who have rejected Jesus and to receive the judgment that our sins deserve. In our place, he took the fire so that you would never get burned. And he's offering that that forgiveness to you today. 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 And so receive it before it's too late. Receive it in this gracious window. Receive it while Jesus is on the donkey. Do not wait for the horse. Receive it now. Jesus called fire upon himself so that you would never get burned. He says no. This is the season of gospel proclamation, of good news proclamation. Have you received that this morning? Are you wavering? Maybe you have received that. But you feel like you failed God. You feel like your commitment level is non-existent to God or to Jesus. Well, let me just say to you again, Jesus set his face to Jerusalem for you. His face is flint. It's not moving. And your redemption and your salvation and your resurrection and your hope is what he is looking to beyond the cross. Lord, we do pray that we would rest in this resolute commitment of Jesus. On this Palm Sunday, as he receives the cries, he knows that we're among that crowd who will cry out, crucify him. It's our sin that placed him there. But his face is set. His work is done. And we now receive it. And we rest in it. Thank you for your commitment, Jesus, to us. That it is set. That it is flint. And when ours waxes and wanes, yours never changes. We love you for that. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.